Welcome to the Reimagined Podcast, a podcast that seeks to reimagine faith and life and community as we link, learn, and live together. I'm Greg English, along with Brad Hoffman and Brian Dupuis. Today, on episode 30, we have a conversation with Doug Paul on the role of the church as a leader in kingdom innovation. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. Episode hey, 30. Episode, wow. Congratulations we are. to you guys. 30 like a episodes. Long time. And, yes. and, I mean, think about it. Within 30 episodes, yeah. we've, we, we're on our third studio. Yes, yeah, we just true. Keep, we just keep scaling up. That's right. That's right. I mean, we started yeah. in, in in the moldy bowels of of this facility. Yes, yes. Like our a long time beginnings. ago, our humble beginnings. Yes, yeah. and then we branched out and we got this big spacious room. Boy, yeah. if people could only see. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. We'll uh, leave it to the imagination. Well, for the patrons, we are offering tours of the studio. That's right. Come on by. That's Take right. Take care of you. We got uh, for two fifty a month. Yeah, two dollars and fifty cents a month. You can you can yep. have a seat in this chair. Yeah, yeah. We'll take you through each stage. Yeah, we'll walk safely. with you through safely. each stage. Yeah, yeah, yep. safely. That's, That's right. right. So, what's happening this week? So, anything anything good? How was your week? Uh, it was good. You know, a follow up. So many people have written and called. <laughs> Wondering how was the pumpkin patch? Oh man! Did you drop a pumpkin? Yeah. How many? Did you uh, how many hold? did you take? How out? many did you take for the twenty bucks? Yeah. And uh, so we made our way out to the pumpkin patch. I will tell you that it was a beautiful drive. Yeah. I don't know from here to Ashland, uh, Virginia, just beautiful. Uh, it was the highways and byways. Uh, did you getting take out the major the road or the back? No, back road. Back. Yeah. Our kids were sick. It was the way it should be. <laughs> and. Making memories, making yeah. memories. So, so at one point they're all like leaning to the side so they can see out the front, and they're like, "Dad, <laughs> stop! You're making us sick." Uh, but we get out to the farm. We get there. Uh, it's it's a Friday afternoon, and it's perfect weather, and it's it's a ghost town comparatively. I mean, the weekends are packed. But you were concerned about Friday. parking. We were concerned about parking. We got a spot right in the front, and we walked out. And we even saw some people we knew. They were heading out with their pumpkins. They looked happy. And so we, we walk on in. We're like, this is great. There's nobody here. And we, we walk up the line to get on the hayride. There's nobody in line. So I walk up there. We're just a happy-go-lucky family. And I, the lady stops me, both hands up, stops me and says, uh, I'm sorry, the hayride uh, just left for the patch. And I said, no, that's all right. It's a beautiful day. We'll wait. And she said, no, no, actually, uh, we're done for the day. What? <laughs> that, no more no. no more hay rides. What? And, and I, that's, that's the look on my face. Yeah. Uh, I, so, so, yeah. They're no longer a sponsor. <laughs> no, 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 no. They've been removed. But, yeah, so that was that we quickly turned around and walked away because there was nothing else for us to do there. And. Uh, they didn't have everything open because of COVID, so... Um, so you went to Kroger? So we left, yeah, we left. <laughs> but we got the picture of the kids in front of the big pumpkin with the uh, measurement. You can tell how tall they yeah, are, yeah. like we've done every year since they were little. <laughs> yeah. So in my mind, I'm thinking, we have no reason to go back. We we have the pictures. Right. We'll just find some pumpkin somewhere and... and be fine. 20 years from now, they'll they'll never remember. It'll yeah. be like, but I, but we're I, going back. I did just hear back. you're you're going back. We are going back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, they did not like that idea. So uh, we're going to go back. Yeah, uh, yeah. we're going to give it a shot. Man. We have a see, few more weeks. It's your life stories that keep us going. We get another well, episode just yeah. to follow up on the pumpkin. Yes. So I just, I, yeah. I want to I I go back for a second. Sure. Talk about uh, car sickness for a moment. Yes, yeah. So what's the rule? If somebody gets sick in the car, do they like move to the front seat? Are they like shotgun or do they have to 
take an airline bag and, and yeah. rough it out? Or Your car what? doesn't yeah. have back windows. Uh, no. That that open, that open like the old no, traditional no, style. No, 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 yeah, no, no. They're they're locked in pretty much. They've got to make do uh, oh. and figure it out. Yeah, um, we we tell them to lean forward. We tell them to we turn on the air. We uh, <laughs> lean forward because when you throw up, you yes, <laughs> yes. No, I'm scared. not on the upholstery, <laughs> please. Uh, so uh, no, yeah, they I, they, they we, figure it out. We yeah. have our, our kid. We have one child that that gets car sick. Fairly often are dead, and I mean, and so um, that particular child would be moved to the front seat because she'd have the full view of the window and you know yeah. wouldn't get sick. So another child saw that one day and pulled the you know I'm feeling car sick. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm feeling car sick, and um, I'm getting car sick. And um, Joe says, "Well, how do you feel?" Oh, my throat's feeling a little scratchy. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you just yeah. sit back right where you yeah. are and be quiet. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. The, the yeah. older I get, uh, I experience that. Even if I'm yeah. even if I'm driving in certain zones, even as a driver, they always say, you know, I can always pull. Well, I get car sick. I got to sit in the front or I got to drive or whatever. Yeah. I love to drive anyway, so that's not a problem. But I know for me, so we're going to travel um, uh, next couple of days. And I told Kelly, I have to have... I don't drink a lot of soda at all, but I have to have a Coke Zero, and I need sweet and salty. That's just mm. like it gives me the balance, yeah, the mental capacity to yeah stay afloat while I'm. You going. know what you need? Yeah, is a box of Mentos. Mm. That is the <laughs> ultimate travel food. Mm. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, oh, yeah. it is. It is. Like yeah. you're going to Africa. You need. I mean, I know you're not, but if you <laughs> thank you for the clarification. Yeah. I'm not leaving. Box of Mentos. I think yeah. that's the one thing I took with me when when I went was I had like 15 little sleeves of uh, Mentos, of Mentos uh, yeah. to make the trip and yeah. to make it back. So yeah. Plus on the plane, that's just good for everybody. <laughs> if you have fresh minty breath. Yeah. <laughs> Except when you get on Airbus Swana and that you yeah. don't have yeah. <laughs> and what's, they're yeah. passing out the beef jerky. Bill, I still remember. Biltong <laughs> is the yeah. official word. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the Biltong. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a reusable toothpick. <laughs> yeah. Petty's parents are expert. When you get into the vehicle with them and they're traveling somewhere, they have all these containers of all different types of foods and and sweet oh, and salty. And travel plan. They have the whole thing yeah. out there. Yeah. And, and the beads that you um, attach oh, to the back. the back. Yeah. 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 See, I, I was thinking about that. Beads. I'm going to have to I'd take a towel and stick it up, you know, the lower back. Yeah. You know, I had some problems the last couple of weeks, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All you need then is a chip clip for the seatbelt thing, and you're all set. Like, you got <laughs> this. Yeah, this, one of those little padded little, all little strips. Yeah. yeah. I, I just aged 20 years sitting here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and absolutely. the original question was, how's your week? Now yeah. I've flown across the country. <laughs> we've we've thrown he, up in the van. Yeah. And, uh, and still have no pumpkins. Yeah. <laughs> this is perfect. I think it's time we start the episode. I think so. Hey, today we're going to do a two-part series on the podcast I'm excited about. We Our all, first, first two-part. First, first two-part. Yeah. So, hey, this is episode 30, so it is. Yeah. It's time to innovate. Yes. And we'll be talking about <laughs> kingdom innovation uh, for a brave new world. That is by author Doug Paul. Doug is an innovative strategist and will be joining us to talk about uh, his new book, Kingdom Innovation, and the phases with that. And we'll also talk about, in the second uh, portion of the show, we'll talk about... Uh, future predictions of the church within the next 10 years. So this will be two good episodes to follow. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Really good conversation. And he's nearby. He's nearby. He's a a neighbor. He's a neighbor just a couple miles down the street. So this is going to be good. So thanks for joining us on the Reimagine podcast. Let's begin with episode 30. Today on the podcast, we welcome innovation strategist, Doug Paul. 
Doug is a full-time innovation strategist while continuing to serve as pastor and elder at a church in the inner city of Richmond, Virginia. Each day, he works with pastors, churches, denominations, and networks who are looking to find the future of the church through the process he's designed for innovation. He's a former global director of content for 3DM and has led, multiplied, coached, or kickstarted more than 5,000 missional communities. He's married to Elizabeth, and they have three children, Avery, Jude, and Sam. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thanks for having me. We also have a Great Dane. That feels like it's worth putting in there. Man, Uh, Great Dane. Wow. That's like, yes. He's he's like a 185-pound lap dog. (laughs) Holy cow. I'm I'm guessing uh, he eats the most. (laughs) <laughs> he eats a lot. He eats 16 cups of food every day. Oh, wow. No. Wow. wow. Holy cow. We, that's like, how many, how many a lot cups of are in a bag? I'm like, that's because those bags are like 15 bucks each time you buy them. Yeah. That's yeah. like that's a little is, more than that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you buy the big, big bag. You know? like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we go through, we probably go through a bag every two weeks. So, wow. so let me ask you, do you go pick that up or do you have that delivered now through, you know, the... Pet Amazon, supply companies. Yeah. Oh, we're definitely on like subscribe and save through Amazon Prime. Yeah. 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 How yeah. big is the de- the uh, delivery driver dropping? That is that a pallet? <laughs> they just drop a pallet oh, in your front, front yard. yard. <laughs> they they uh, they probably need to. The thing is, I mean, the bag is like fifty pounds. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. heavy. Yeah. 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 A fifty pound bag would last us a year and a half. With your little with our little dog. Yeah. 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 Uh, but now he's moved on to elder food. Uh, he's <laughs> he's he's too old for the young dog. The healthy food. weight yeah. elder food. <laughs> yeah. So I know we do the same. With now ours. we've graduated, and it's like three times as expensive. I know. Fantastic. Right? It's fantastic. You're listening to the dog podcast. Yes, oh, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, it's all part about an innovation. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. So, that's right. Hey, well, that's let's right. Uh, let's jump in. And yeah. Doug, just want to talk about uh, you just recently um, uh, had a book come out called Kingdom Innovation. I think just came out. Uh, you know, the mid-October here, we're in mid-October. Yeah. And uh, so congratulations on that. But yeah. just want to ask you, before you. you wrote the book, um, what were you doing? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, the last the last 15 to 17 years of ministry, I've, I've kind of pinged back and forth between being a local church pastor, having planted a church. I was a teaching pastor at a mega church for a while, oversaw multi-site stuff. Um, and I was pinging back and forth between either launching stuff, starting stuff, pioneering stuff, or helping um, get a nonprofit off of the ground, uh, training pastors and leaders and denominational leaders in some of the things that we were doing around. What is not new anymore, but at the time in like 2008 with missional communities, was really new here in the States. And so I've kind of gone back and forth between what some people would consider full-time ministry, uh, meaning pastor, uh, or... Uh, working with pastors and socialpreneurs and things like that. So I've gone, kind of done that, but have always had my foot, because I just have a, a very strong conviction and love for the local church, always had a foot in leadership in the local church, whatever season we were in. And sort of the, the genesis of the book, the start of it was just saying, like, what is what, what is defined? I was in a, having a conversation with a friend, and we are just thinking over, like, our last 15 years of, you know, career, vocation, whatever, and just trying to think, like, what is it that has really defined the work that we've been doing? And the the word that we kind of landed on for what I've been doing was just innovation. And the more I thought about it, the more that made sense to me. And I really, I, I felt a sense of conviction at that point. Where it was like, okay, if I know this is the word, a lot of what I'm doing, I'm doing intuitively. It's not because 
I've studied on it or I've, I've, I've learned best practices. I'm just tripping into it. Mm. Um, and so it started a journey of just trying to really work through what are the, what are the best practices? What's the deep research? What's the academic stuff behind this? What are some of the best stories that no one's heard of around this, particularly through the lens of uh, Jesus followers? And so that's, that's where it started. We didn't start it with the idea of it's going to turn into a book. It was more just a personal journey of like, I want to get better at what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah. So was there anything in particular you saw um, out there in, in church and innovation that was missing? Is there, uh, did you see, hey, this, this needs to be addressed or, um, or uh, this needs to be communicated? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think very few leaders actually know how to innovate and to do it well, because innovation is a skill in the same way that preaching is a skill, the same way that casting vision is a skill, putting together a budget is a skill, um, leading a team is a skill. Like these are hard skills that you can learn. Innovation is a skill just like that. And I'm not saying that innovation is the only tool in a leader's tool belt, but I do think it's a tool that's missing. And particularly for the, the way that culture keeps changing and reinventing and shifting, if it's a tool that we're missing, it's a, it, I think it's sort of like the equivalent of a carpenter missing a hammer. Like that, it's a it's a fundamental tool for leaders in the future. That's a misconception, though. I mean, right? You, you think innovation, you think, oh, oh that just comes to people, uh, drops out of the sky. Uh, that's, yeah, that's something that you know, just these wickedly smart people uh, just <laughs> just come up with. I mean, I remember in seminary we had these classes: pastor as administrator or pastor as yeah. you know. But um, there was no pastor as innovator. Uh, yeah, and, and and so it's not even there's not even an approach to developing that skill. I don't I don't think, or at least not widely spread. <laughs> no, and I think it's what you named is one of the great myths that's in like the cultural waters, not just in the church, but in I think the wider waters of um, North America, or at least the Western context, which is that like some people seem to have this innovation gene. Like th- some people have an extra extra Y chromosome that allows them to be an innovator and other people don't. Yeah. And that's, that is a, that's a load of hooey. Like, it's just not true. Yeah. Um, some people are predisposed to having more ideas or might be more predisposed to trying new things. But when you look at some of the most significant innovations that have happened, they didn't come from a pioneering person. Oftentimes they came because like there was just a need and someone was like, I'll try to figure that out. Like Alcoholics Anonymous didn't come from a pioneer. It came from someone who was like, I've got to get sober. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. Innovation <laughs> comes out of a need. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we, we, you're right. In Western culture, we, we do sit around and we, we compare ourselves. We look and we only see the end result of people's long journeys and processes. And then we, we try to be innovators, but yet we quit on innovation because we don't like the process of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a backstory to it. You know, one of the good things about the book is uh, these stories that you you talk about of, of people, of companies, organizations. Uh, and there's a whole backstory to it that that most of the time we we aren't privy to. We just see, like you said, this this end result. Yeah, we'll we'll hit some we'll hit some of those things in the book. But to go along with that, Brian, what I love that story of, of Jonathan Brooks. That's the that's the story in the book that hit me about trying innovation. There was a need, there was an idea, but how to move people in and through the process of it to move to 
be in the neighborhood with the people. That just, that one really struck me. You talk about the why in the book early on. I'd love to uh, read a quote here and, uh, and have you say more, because this relates to uh, not just innovation as a skill you can learn, but also uh, innovation in the church. So you say this, I believe there is opportunity to reclaim the ancient heritage staked out almost two millennia ago. The people of God should be the most wildly innovative and pioneering people the world has ever known. Because when they have lived into this with the Spirit of God leading them, the world has shifted on its axis. So can you say more about that, the history of the church and innovation? Yeah, when you look at, I mean, this is, I think this is one of the sad things that has happened in the last maybe 200 years is um, we've, we've come to see ourselves as the status quo people. As and maybe this is just because in the in the Western context is we've accumulated more power that comes with like stability. But when you look at the first eighteen hundred years of the church's life, it was oftentimes on the margin and oftentimes in really challenging situations. Um, but I mean, like I think about the city of the city of Ephesus where. You know, Paul Paul plants this church in Acts 19, and it is it's the center of the emperor cult, and it is the amount of like hedonism and evil and just spiritual warfare that would be happening in the center is is off the charts. I mean, like if you actually dig into what what their ten day festivals were doing, um, probably not something we should mention on the podcast out loud. Like <laughs> yeah. it is. Like it's, I mean, it's. We'll it's, put the explicit uh, little symbol. We'll put, yeah, right it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is mature content. Like it is crazy the stuff that was happening, and yet, like fifty years after John writes the Book of Revelation to this group of people, ninety-five percent of the city has become Christians, and they've just, they've eradicated poverty, mm. and the emperor cult has been completely kicked out. It's unbelievable. Like we don't we don't think about like that as innovation, but like a city completely eradicated poverty. That is a massive innovation. A city went from from like a demonic cult with all these crazy practices to all of them are Christians. I mean, when we think about the advancement of medicine, when we think about the advancement of music, the advancement of the arts, these were all things that Christians were leading. When we think about the, the um some of the things that happened with some of the great social movements in history, whether that was the, the destruction of apartheid, the abolition of the slave trade. Now we also perpetrated those things, which is terrible, but they were also upended by people who were Christian leaders. And I think we, we lose sight of like how we have been on the forefront of these incredible social innovations. And that has been our lifeblood for so long. And somewhere along the way that kind of ebbed to the side. We've been talking about innovation, um, but what we hadn't defined it yet. So, if, if someone's asking, "What is innovation?" what do you what do you tell them? Well, there's there's innovation and there's kingdom innovation. And so, what what the book was primarily about was kingdom innovation. So, the way that I define that is, kingdom innovation is something that's new, it works, and it gives glory to Jesus. So, new that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a brand new invention, which we can talk about in a second if we want. It works. It's got to be better than something that looks good. It can't just be something that looks good on a piece of paper. It has to work in real life. 
and then it brings glory to Jesus. Whoever innovated it, they are not the center of the story. The innovation itself is not the center of the story. Jesus is the center of the story. And I think that's how I, I, those three parts, it's new, it works, it brings glory to Jesus, are the, the, the three things that are the, the defining characteristics of a kingdom innovation. So a lot of times we sit around and think, you know, well, we need to come up with something new. We need to innovate. Let's sit around the room. Let's throw a whiteboard up there. Let's put some things out there. Uh, so go back again and say a little bit more about it doesn't necessarily have to be something new uh, to be a part of kingdom innovation. Yeah, I think... One of the misnomers around innovation is that it equals invention. And so we think, hey, there was, there was nothing, and now there's something. And so that must be what innovation is. It's, the, it's, it's coming up with something that has never looked, smelled, or felt like anything we've ever seen before. But a lot of the most important innovations that we've seen are ones that are they're, they're almost like little tweaks, little adjustments that have happened. So like with Alpha, are you all familiar with Alpha? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so with Alpha, when when it was first started, I think it was in 1979. It was a class to teach doctrine to to people who were already Christians. But when Nicky Gumbel looked at it, and he didn't grow up in a Christian home, he looked at it and thought, "Oh, the way this class is structured, it would be really helpful for people who are asking big questions who don't know Jesus yet." And so, all he did is took something that already existed. He tweaked it just a little, turned it just a little, and suddenly it became an evangelism program. And 30 million people have come to faith through Alpha. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Or we, we think something like a discovery Bible study. When we think Bible studies, what do we think? We think people in a circle who are all Christians, who are, you know, per, per, perhaps in a stodgy way talking about Jesus or the Bible or, or, or exegeting scripture, whatever it is. But a discovery Bible study takes a simple concept like the Bible study, it tweaks it just a little, and it brings this evangelistic edge to it. And I'm, I'm working with an organization right now, and they're using discovery Bible studies um, to reach unreached people groups. So people who have never in their lifetime heard of Jesus before, ever. And in the last 15 years, 1.8 million people have come to faith in Jesus. So just this one organization and what it is that they're doing using discovery Bible studies. So Bible studies have existed for a long time, right? right. It's just sometimes we just need to tweak it just a little and, it, it, and, and repurpose what it was for, and we can see this whole fresh wind of the Spirit blow through it. So in the book, you, give, you talk about five phases of innovation. Uh, can you briefly touch on a little bit of those and then maybe, oh, hey, there's a new word I'm going to use. I would say deep dive, but I heard this the other day. <laughs> We, we might double-click on a few of these. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, yeah, okay. That, that, that's a new trend among <laughs> podcast words. You heard it here first on Reimagine. Uh, but, so, but let's, uh, let's go back to the original uh, question. Let's, yeah. talk, let's talk briefly about the five phases of kingdom innovation. Yeah, I'll go through them very fast because, as you know, it's a book. Like, I've literally got two chapters devoted to each one. Yeah. So I'm going to give the thumbnail sketch of the thumbnail sketch. Okay. Um, so the first, the first phase is around identification, and we're asking the why question. We're saying, like, why do we need this innovation? This is really important because oftentimes we go after things that are trying to solve the wrong problem. Hmm. So if we're looking to fix Bible studies or small groups or Sunday school, we think, like, we, we ask the question, like, how do we fix this? When the question probably 
which is more important is like, why did we start this in the first place? What was the original problem we were trying to solve? So the first phase is really helping people frame, why do we need this innovation and how are we going to know if it works or not? Second phase is around ideation. And that's really, that's really where we're, we're getting into coming up with new ideas and practices, paradigms for what something could look like that would be new. And we're walking away with a very simple prototype that we can test and experiment with so that we get to phase three, which is experimentation. We're actually taking that little beta, that little prototype, and we're putting it into the water with a few people and we're seeing what happens. And we keep experimenting with it until it actually does the thing that we think that it could do. Phase four is, multi- or excuse me, is mobilization. And that's saying like, okay, this thing worked. Why did it work? And how could we teach other people to do it? So we're codifying the process that we experienced. And then phase five is multiplication. Suddenly, we've got, we've got this new innovation in the hands of lots of people. It's highly multipliable, and we press go. That's sort of the, the overarching idea of those five phases. Yeah, as, as, uh, as I was reading through those, those different phases, you know, one, one question I have for you is, where do you find that leaders tend to get stuck? Um, mm-hmm. uh, one thing that I noticed, uh, you were talking about having an idea, being able to, to experiment, test it out, um, and then you're talking about scalability, and what struck me, and you pointed out, is that oftentimes we have an idea, and we automatically scale it out as big as possible. Um, and, and try to run with it. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and so for me, I thought, man, that's helpful. Where do I have to where we can, we can work this and see it happen in real time and, and get feedback and, and understand what was working and why. And as we're moving, um, larger, um, do you, do you find that's, that's where a lot of leaders get stuck or, or is there another area that, that you've noticed? No, I think, that third phase experimentation, I don't know if I would say it's where leaders get stuck. I would say it's the phase leaders skip. Mm, yeah. It's, I, my, just my experience working with pastors has been, we are so used to importing someone else's program from some other place mm-hmm. um, that, has, that has actually gone through these five phases and has been codified. And now it's being multiplied literally into another church. So that could be Andy Stanley's small group system. That could be you know, missional communities, the way that maybe Soma thinks about them. It could be anything, right? We import it from another church, and we we know, like, okay, we've got everything we need. We can immediately scale it to the entire church. From We can go from, like, zero to 60 in two weeks. We know how to do that. That isn't how innovation actually works, though. That's importing someone else's innovation. When you're doing it yourself, it's what pastors tend to do is skip that third one. They just assume if it's a good idea, then it will work. And that is, that, quite frankly, that just couldn't be further from the truth. There's a, um, I, I, I swear, I remember where I was sitting the first time I read this. There was a, there's this great, great book that's a classic in like the innovation space, whatever that means, um, <laughs> called uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. It's by this guy named Clayton Christensen, who is a Harvard professor. He actually passed away last year. And he wrote, um, like, this was the book that most influenced Steve Jobs and, like, the way that he thought about business. It's crazy. And he wrote that, um, you know, 80%, we know that, like, 80% of, of new businesses fail. Um, he said, but of the, of the ones that actually succeed, 
90% of them actually win with an idea that wasn't their first idea. And so you think about that and it's like, if that's true, then that means the idea that I'm starting with is probably wrong. And if that's the case, that would mean that experimentation is incredibly important because I don't, I shouldn't assume that just because I, the senior leader, had the idea that it's right, or two, that we've got this idea that we really like that it's right. Experimentation says it's an idea. We like it, but we should still test it. Do you think we skip that phase because we're just afraid of failure? That's just our, our culture and our bent? I think, I think that is a big piece of it. I think the experimentation phase sort of implied in it is the idea that it might not work. And there's something in the water for Christian leaders that's like, Failure, particularly public failure, um, is unacceptable. And I think that is why we skip over that. Of course, the problem with that is that the, the failure just becomes bigger by skipping over that. Because if right. you try to scale it and it doesn't work, it's now really a public failure. As opposed to, hey, we were doing this with 10 people, it didn't work, but they all knew it might not work. Um, but I think there's our fear of failure, which is kind of woven into our Christian culture here in the West, I think is a big reason why we, one, we may not try new things like we, what we have the opportunity to, but two, we might just skip that experimentation phase altogether. So with the pandemic, uh, though, this plays right into that because I mean, I know, I know for me within certain things of, of participating in now, like I'm only shooting four to six weeks out. So everything we do in terms of, um, reopening, regathering, connecting, moving people out or whatever. I'm thinking like four to six week windows. Brad, you you talk yeah. about a hundred you talk about the next hundred days. days. Yeah. So really this the pandemic in, in in terms of kingdom innovation really is merging at the right time because it really gives us the opportunity to experiment and kind of set a timeline. Okay, we'll test this for, for two months or we'll test this for six weeks or whatever. So this this really has an opportunity to open up. It does. And I think my I've been asked this a couple of times around, you know, what are you hoping happens on the other side of the pandemic? My hope isn't that we just come away with like new tactics, like, Oh, we found this thing online um, that we experimented with and it was really helpful and we're going to keep doing that. I mean, I hope that happens, but my, my bigger hope is that we would actually develop some new muscle memory for innovation Mm -hmm. because what works now online probably won't work in two years. Right. And that's not a problem if you've got muscles that have built up and you're, you're used to innovating now. So my hope is actually in the way that, the way that you guys just described it, which I love, by the way, like four to six weeks out, hundred days, what you're talking about is almost like a disciplined regimen of going to the gym. I'm like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do this lifting. And eventually if we do that long enough, I'm going to build muscle that wasn't fully there. Well, the same is true of innovation. And I think, my hope and prayer is that the COVID on the other side of it, we've got some new muscles that we get to build with and play with in the future. So anything uh, that would be developing a new muscle, uh, anything that you've seen uh, for churches during the pandemic, that kind of challenges or opportunities ahead specifically. Well, I think early on there was an opportunity and you saw some churches do this. And I thought there's, some really great fruit from it. There's an opportunity to really 
pressed down into um, the neighborhood and like people owning their streets. And so, I mean, I know at, at our church, um, one of the things that we do, we, we did is that we, we had each person, um, they were writing letters to people on their street. It was basically like, hey, I'm your neighbor. I live here. We don't know what COVID is going to do. Um, but if you need anything, please let us know. Here's my email address. Here's my phone number. Um, and just as a result of that, there was all of this um, renewed energy on our streets around like just being good neighbors and talking to each other and knowing each other. So I think for churches that did things like that, 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 that bore some fruit, but as, as COVID has worn on, you know, the, the desire to do stuff like that has waned because I think it's been replaced with, we just want things to get back to normal. And I think that's the challenge that, that leaders are facing right now, which is like, I think we're just all fatigued, right? We just, right. we just want this to be over. And I get that. I mean, I want this to be over. I want, uh, I want, I don't know that things are ever getting back to normal, but I would like to be on the other side of this. But you I think things the, will be normal. It will just be different. You know, it'll be it'll, a new it'll be normal. Good. It'll be yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you a question though on the innovation piece. Uh, do you find that, and I think from, from just where, where we are, maybe this is uh, there's Early on, there was this quick adaption to circumstance situations, everybody going online, everyone doing this stuff. And, and then you find out, well, how, you know, everybody's doing this and nobody, <laughs> nobody's liking it, you know, <laughs> but, paying attention. But, I think, yeah. but I think about the innovation piece, sometimes I think innovation, um, innovation is taxing mentally, I think, and physically and emotionally. Yeah. And so does the leader need to make space to do that? I mean, in, in COVID, there is this movement forward and you've got to be ahead of the game, but you've got to create the space to innovate and to think through that. So what do you say to a leader that is struggling? You know, maybe they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're in a place of where they're tired, they're struggling. They want to innovate, but they're struggling with that in the process. I mean, this is a great book and great process. And, and I think it, the way you've placed it here, and of course the, the work in each chapter or each section you help the leader think intuitively through it and hopefully create this, this process that's fluid for them. <clears throat> but how do you help a leader to create space to innovate? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. Um, and it, it, it's not, that question is not going to go away. Right. I don't think, I mean, I think leadership and the challenges of leadership uh, in, in our country are just going to get more difficult. Um, I think the, the first place to start is it's really important that leaders are honest with where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing that Jesus says, it's a very simple teaching, kind of like a very simple parable, but it's really powerful. It's like, look, this guy is about to go into battle. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to look at the enemy's side and he's like, all right. How many men do they have? How many horses? What's their supply lines? And then they're going to look and they're going to say like, okay, how much do I have? And they're either going to say like, yeah, we can win or we're going to sue for peace. And so the, the moral of the story, Jesus says, is you got to count the cost. And I think that's really important. Um, mm-hmm. The point of innovation isn't innovation. Like innovation is a means to an end to join God on the mission that he's in, that he's already doing. Mm-hmm. And that's central to like, it's all the glory goes to Jesus, not to us. So the first thing is just to say, 
look, if you are, if you're already like hanging on by a very thin thread, like don't let the pursuit of innovation be the thing that, that cuts that thread and you're done. Mm-hmm. Like that's, we got to be honest about like where we're at. The second thing is simply we, we tend when we think about when we're leaders, when we think about change or leadership or adaptation or innovation or whatever it is, we tend to start, our thoughts tend to start organizationally. And I actually think our thoughts need to start far more like in our own living rooms, in our own kitchens, in the laboratory of our own life. Mm-hmm. Like we've got to think, hey, before, because again, we, our thoughts always go to scale. We're going to scale it for the entire church. We're going to scale it organizationally. And I think pastors for a long time um, have felt called to ministry. They felt called to a life of uh, seeing other people's lives transformed and changed. And somewhere along the way, it feels like we got suckered into running a church. Um, and we're like, is this really what I wanted to do with my life? <laughs> can, can I get an amen? Really? Is this what you thought it was going to be? People you know? in the back. Yeah, yeah, sure. And so I think it's really important, like, lower our sights actually and be like, Hey, like, let's be a disciple first. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start in our own living rooms. Let's, let's think about our kids. Let's think about our kids and their friends. Let's think about our, like my wife or our partner and our, and whoever it is that we're, what we're connected with that we're friends with. Like, what is, what does a fresh one of God look like for them before we like, don't start organizationally, just start in your own life. And I think if we start thinking like that, I think the fatigue that we naturally feel from like the vocational pressures, that actually is, it's a different thing because we're not thinking about vocational life first. We're actually thinking about like the life that God has given us and he wants to be good. Uh, one of the words that has just been really, I guess, in my mind, I can't get away from it, is this, and it's the difference between the 4,000 and the 5,000. And in the 4,000, it says that Jesus was unwilling to let them go. And I think in terms of, you know, if I, if I relate that to my own life in a sense of getting food and that kind of stuff, when I, when I relate it to my own life, when I'm tired and when I'm exhausted, I think sometimes I'm willing to let things go. And it is only when I am renewed and refreshed and I am in, I, lack of a better word, connected in a sense, it's only when I'm there that I, I am unwilling to let these things go. And... And that is about being in tune with where people are in my neighborhood, in my family, and and those that are around me. And so, I think that's part of what I, I reason I bring up that question is just there is a piece as an innovator, as a leader, um, you've got to be you uh, you get you got to be healthy in a sense. But I think you come back to I love the scale conversation because that's that's like a whole conversation you could have completely. So I mean that's good stuff yeah. in a sense. So I appreciate your wisdom um, in that. Thanks for joining us on the Reimagine Podcast. As always, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and Overcast, and download any of the episodes and rate them. So for Brad and Brian, I'm Greg. Thanks for listening to the Reimagine Podcast.